0: not. Um, But I I like to look on the bright side of things. I'm an optimistic person, and we libertarians, we libertarians consider the 2016 American presidential election to be a teachable moment, a teachable moment. You know, when, when are America's conservative politicians, which is to say all those scores of Republicans who lost the nomination to Donald Trump, when are they going to learn that cultural conservatism is a lost cause. Uh, I mean, the, the, the conservative Republicans, are, they're still fighting the culture wars. They're up on the front lines of the culture wars, bravely firing away at reproductive choice, and, and, and recreational drugs, and, and, and gay rights, and, and they haven't noticed that the other side has gone home. Gone home to to celebrate victory with legalized marijuana at same-sex wedding receptions, you know? <laughs> And then on the other hand, when are America's progressive lefty Democrats, when are they going to learn that political power, it's a two-way road? You know, it's a t- the the progressives build this huge, heavy, speeding and unstoppable road train of a government, and then they get all frightened and weepy when it looks as if someone like Trump may get behind the wheel, you know, turn the road train around and run them down with it, you know? All this, by the way, in stark contrast to your elections. Five… <laughs> oh. Five, 5 prime ministers in six years. <laughs> you sure know how to throw the bastards out, don't you? <laughs> And then you let them right back in again. (laughs) Mystery to me. Uh, But anyway, bringing this back to to, to classical liberalism, bringing this back to to libertarianism. You know, the thing about the classical liberal point of view is that it's not a political philosophy. Libertarianism is an anti-political philosophy. Libertarians don't want to fix politics. Well, I take that back. We do want to fix politics, the way you would fix a cat, the way you would spay a dog, the way you would castrate a dangerous bull. We mean to tame these political sons of bitches. We're going to teach them not to beg at the table, teach them not to bark at the moon, teach them to quit leaking each other's you know what I mean. We're going to teach politicians to heal. We're going to teach politicians to come when they're called. More important, we're going to teach them the meaning of down boy, and watch them scurry away with their tails between their legs when we say get. We are going to teach politicians domestic policy, stay off the furniture, no politics on my bed, okay? We're going to teach them foreign policy, stop making messes on other people's lawns, you know? We're going to teach them to roll over and play dead because we're going to teach them term limits. When we toss our political power to a politician, that politician is going to bring our political power right back and drop it at our feet. Good boy, now get back in the kennel. Or such is the fervent hope of every libertarian. Faint hope, perhaps. Um, you know, the foundation of classical liberalism is freedom. but Freedom, are, freedom turns out to be complex thirty-two definitions of free in the Oxford English Dictionary. Now, I love freedom, but I love to drink, too. And there are thirty-two kinds of drunk, and not all of them are fabulous, you know, been there. (laughs) See, plenty of people are theoretically in favor of freedom, We're all but overrun with theoretical allies in freedom's cause. We've got collaborators in the fight for freedom that we don't even want. I mean, the proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. That's the second to the last sentence in the Communist Manifesto. And, and, you know, tens of millions of people were executed and sent to the gulag by that definition of freedom. And also we should keep in mind the etymology of the word freedom. The original meaning of the old English word frio was not in bondage. The most meaningful thing about freedom is that mankind has a sickening history of slavery. So freedom's a complex concept and the purpose of politics so far as I can see is to make that concept of freedom more complex. Now our politicians pay homage to freedom, but they don't really like it. What politicians like is rights. They like rights. Now, rights and freedom are not the same thing. There is a big difference between my asking someone if she is free to have a dance and my telling her I have a right to it. You know? Or the Australian right to vote. Turns out that right is compulsory. People don't vote, you find them. Now, I know, I'm coming from a country that's barking mad, so I I probably shouldn't say anything to you. But, compulsory voting. Are you nuts? Are you absolutely nuts? If a voter doesn't know anything about politics, anything about the candidates, anything about the issues, pay him to stay home. (laughs) Uh, Now, in political science, there's a distinction between Negative rights and positive rights, and like most things in the study of political science, this is confusing, uh, because negative negative rights are positively good, and positive rights have lots of negative consequences. So right away we're confused. Negative rights. Negative rights are your rights to be free from things, like arbitrary arrests, search and seizure without a warrant, uh, forced deportation to Australia, for that matter, you know. Uh, And then, once you got here, freedom from being frog-marched into the voting booth and fined if you don't mark your ballot. Um, Negative rights are your rights to be from things. Positive rights are your rights to get things for free. Free education, for example. Now, I can't speak for Australia. Uh, You seem quite well-educated, but in the U.S., we have primary and secondary education that is free and worth it. a better, name, a better name for negative rights and positive rights, better names, would, would be get-out-of-here rights and gimme rights. Now, my usual example of get-out-of-here rights is, is, is the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights that's in the U.S. Constitution, but then I, I wikied it and you don't have one. Um, yeah, you've got a few... Specific rights that are guaranteed by the Australian Constitution, religious liberty, trial by jury that 's somewhat problematic, gimme, get out of here, right to vote, uh, and your property can 't be snatched away. well, it can be snatched away, but the legislative rigmarole certain amount of that is involved, otherwise, you depend for your rights on 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 parliamentary legislation and on common law, going back to the Magna Carta. Magna Carta, which I believe gives barons the right to pull the king's crown down around his ears, tweak his nose, and give the elastic in his codpiece a snap, or <laughs> something. It's very kind of hard-going reading the Magna Carta, it's not spelled well. Um, obviously, they didn't have free education at the time. Um, now whether you should, you Australians should go out and get a Bill of Rights uh, 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 like Americans have is something I believe has been brought up, and, and it's an interesting question. Uh, we have our First Amendment in the United States, our right to unlimited free speech and liberty of worship, no matter what insane thing we're worshiping. And, uh, and this is not without its downsides. We can't get Donald Trump to shut up, you know. And we can't stop people on Washington, from in, in, uh, excuse me, people in wall, on Wall Street. We cannot stop them from bowing down to Hillary Clinton when she's giving a paid speech to Goldman Sachs. So a little bit of worries there with our First Amendment. We've got our Second Amendment. Uh, that's our right to keep and bear arms. Um, this, is, this is not in the U.S. Constitution, as many people around the world must think, to make a mass murder an easy DIY project uh, in the United States. Uh, it's there. It was originally there because it was once the case, uh, uh, historically, that whole groups of people were not allowed to keep and bear arms. Groups of people such as the Irish, uh, uh, such as my family, uh, uh, they, some of whom got shipped to Australia as rebels and others of whom got shipped to the United States as ballast. Um, so, anyway, keep right to keep and bear arms, all, all well and good in theory, but as you may have noticed in practice, turns out to be a little messy. Uh, we've got our, our, our Third Amendment. Uh, this is uh, giving us the right not to have troops quartered in our house. Uh, The government cannot put a soldier in our bed, although no mention is made of what if the soldier is very attractive and fit. (laughs) (laughs) Then we have our amendments four through eight, which pretty much cover the same ground as your common law rights, but without the part about the barons, you know, taking the piss out of the king. Uh, And then we've got really two excellent amendments uh, kind of joined together, nine and ten, which basically say, did we miss anything? Did we miss anything? Is there some right you thought you had that didn't get mentioned in the preceding uh, 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 list of eight? Uh, well, you've still got it. You've still got it. I quote, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage other rights retained by the people. So, good on the Founding Fathers. But I'll tell you what I like, what I actually like about the American Bill of Rights is that all of the rights enumerated are get-out-of-here rights. There is not a gimme right to be found in the Bill of Rights. It's not like, for example, the old Constitution of the Soviet Union, that was full of gimme rights. I mean, the Soviet Constitution, it said everyone had a right to a job, a right to a job. Oh joy, oh rapture unforeseen, you know. Bill of Rights uh, uh, in the U.S. Constitution is entirely to do with the American freedom to say, I have got God, guns, and a big damn mouth, and if the police arrest me, the judge will go my bail. It's all about fundamental get-out-of-here rights, our right to be left alone, our freedom from interference, usually from our government, but also from our fellow citizens uh, when they want us to sober up, quit yelling, put the shotgun down, and go back in our trailer, you know? (laughs) Now, politicians are always lukewarm supporters of -of get-out-of-here rights. I mean, for one thing, at every election, politicians are being invited to get-out-of-here, you know. For another thing, strict adherence to get-out-of-here rights, as a a basis for free society, it leaves little scope for legislating, something that legislators dearly love to do. Now, gimme rights are much more politically alluring. Gimme rights form the basis of all political promises, of all political platforms, and this is how we find ourselves as voters tempted with rights. Rights to education, to health care, to housing, to a living wage, to high-speed internet access, to free, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. You know? <laughs> And politicians show no signs of even knowing the difference between get out out of here and and give me rights. Indeed, politicians mix those kinds of rights together uh, uh, with malice of forethought and intentionally present their citizens with a muddled idea of freedom. Now, perhaps the most famous political pronouncement of freedom ever made was uh, by American President Franklin Roosevelt. Roosevelt declared there were four freedoms. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from want, freedom from fear. But notice that beggar, number three, freedom from want, has slipped in among the other, the other, you know, courageously speaking, devoutly praying, bravely fighting freedoms. And when a politician says freedom from want, we should well ask, want what? When a politician promises freedom from want, that's not a political statement of generosity. It's a political statement that if we wish to be free from want, we need to go to the political system to become so. And how well is that political system going to deliver? Well, when Franklin Roosevelt made his Four Freedom speech in January 1941, there were six million Jews in Europe who wanted nothing but a safe place to go. Politicians are careless about promising gimme rights and cynical about delivering them. And gimme rights, in turn, are absurdly expandable. The government gives me the right to get married. This indicates that I have a right to a good marriage. Otherwise, why bother giving me that right? My marriage is made a lot better by my children's right to daycare, so that the brats aren't in my face all day being deprived of the right to a nurturing developmental environment. Because every child has the right to a happy childhood, so I I have the right to happy children. Richer children are happier. Give me some of Angelina Jolie's. (laughs) (laughs) Wrong rights kill freedom. Wrong rights suckle the predators upon freedom, politicians. Wrong rights are the source of political power. Now the expense of gimme rights makes politicians fat and happy. They get to do the spending. They even get-out-of-your-rights aren't free. You know, they entail a military, a constabulary, a judiciary, and a considerable expenditure of patients by our neighbors in a tra- trailer park. But, gimme rights, gimme rights require no end of money, and money is the least of their cost. Every right means the transfer of goods and services from one group of citizens to another. Now, the first group of citizens, they lose this, these goods and services. But all citizens lose the power that must be given to a political authority to enforce that transfer. Now, so far, I have been speaking in the abstract, except about Donald Trump. He is, he's all too concrete, um, especially from the neck up. Uh, but there, there, there is a, a, not just an abstract argument, but there is a, a, a practical side to classical liberalism. Everybody knows government costs too much, but thanks to the work of two of libertarians, libertarianism's patron saints, really, the economists Milton and Rose Friedman, thanks to their work, classical liberals are able to explain why government costs so much. Now, more than 30 years ago, in their book and their TV special, Free to Choose, the Friedmans used a, a very simple four-box, box graph to show that mathematically there are only four ways to spend money. Only four ways that money can be spent. Your money spent on yourself, your money spent on other people, other people's money spent on you other people's money spent on other people. That's the only four ways that money can be spent. Now, way number one, your money spent on yourself. Now, let's take cars as an example of something to spend on, and me as an example of someone doing the spending, okay? Now, 20 20 odd years ago, 26 years ago, I guess, I I, I bought a Porsche uh, that I still have, Uh, is great. I I, I got a terrific deal on it. I, I got it almost new from a dentist who had scared himself with it and bought a Lexus instead. You see, when you spend your money on yourself, you get as nearly as you can exactly what you want, and you bargain as hard as you can for it. And then there's way number two, your money spent on other people. Now, you still bargain hard but you're not quite as concerned about getting exactly what's wanted, although I'm sure that my wife is very fond of the Yugo that I got for her and the kids. (laughs) Way number three, spending other people's money on yourself, well, I'm on the fence uh, between… there's a Lamborghini uh, Lamborghini, uh, Aventador. Uh, 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 that, uh, that costs uh, $834,000. Uh, I'm kind of on the fence between that and an Aston Martin DB9 GT, which is a steal at $201,000. And then there's way number four, spending other people's money on other people. You're not involved at all. It's not your buck. Nothing is in it for you, so it might as well be billions spent on reopening all the Holden factories and giving the jobs to saltwater crocodiles who are endangered by climate change. Right? And way number four is the way that all government spending is done. So that's why government costs too much. And everybody also knows that government shouldn't be given too much power, but but classical liberalism can tell us why government shouldn't be given too much power. And the reason is because government has a special kind of power, a kind of comic book superhero power, a more Properly, I should say, a comic book supervillain power. The political system, you see, as in our, our, in our developed world democratic countries, political system has a monopoly on the legal use of deadly force. And that deadly force can be brought to bear upon you for the violation of even the most trivial government regulation. Now, you fall afoul of recycling rules, and you'll get a citation from the Department of Sanitation, and you don't pay the fine, and you'll be sent to jail, escape from jail, and they'll shoot you. You could be executed for failing to separate the green plastic from the clear plastic <laughs> in your recycling bin. And your country doesn't even have a death sentence. You, know? you don't even have that penalty. So you think about it, you could be executed. Do you? think we should give more power to politicians who would do a thing like that government shouldn't be given more power because government is also because government is zero sum one of the core principles of libertarianism is that the world is not a zero sum place we can make more things We can make more things. We can make more things. We can make more money. We can make more food. We can make more energy. We can make more babies. The way for me to get things is by me making them, not by having the government take them from you. But politics is zero-sum. There's a fixed amount of political power because there's a fixed amount of me. The political power you have over me Because you're holding me at gunpoint because I tried to escape from jail after failing to recycle my trash by separating the clear plastic from the green plastic, that's power that I lose to you. And people know that they're losing their power to the political system. They don't like it. But it's a big temptation to give more and more power to government because government is a huge tool, mighty in its operation, nearly irresistible in its movement, never mind that it doesn't know where it's going. But government is a huge tool, and it's tempting to use a tool like this when something needs fixing. People don't stop and ask themselves whether the tool suits the task. Now, there is something in the human psyche, particularly, I may say, in the male human psyche, that makes us love big tools. Possessed of a big tool, a man feels a compulsion to use it. hmm? And we don't need to get rude, For examples, you give a man a high-power cordless electric drill, and you will get holes all over your house. You know, know, in the 1940s, shortly after that very big tool, the atomic bomb, had been employed on the Japanese, there was a proposal in the U.S. Congress, in all seriousness, to use atomic bombs to blast a new sea-level canal through the Isthmus of Panama. Men are dangerous when they have big tools. Power of any kind is dangerous, and government power is particularly so, or to put the whole case differently, government is a Rottweiler ready to be unleashed on your problems and you've stuffed raw meat down the front of your pants. (laughs) Now now one method, one method of being careful with government power is is to think about our messy government the way we think about our messy personal lives. Okay, there are furious ex-spouses, bitter former lovers, various outstanding child support judgments. We don't want too much of that in one place, right? Which is why we're moving to Kal-Girly. uh You see, America was lucky this way. America's founding fathers knew enough about messy personal lives, especially Thomas Jefferson, I would say. Um, yeah, uh, especially Thomas Jefferson, yeah. Nothing fraught about that relationship with Sally Hemings. Um, Anyway, as I was saying, America's founding fathers, they they knew enough about messy personal lives to make sure that the U.S. Constitution contained decentralization of power and a system where each branch of government would check and balance, at least in theory, the other branches of government. Because if all the ex-spouses, the former lovers, and kids whose school fees were supposed to be paying became friends and got the same lawyer, America's founding fathers would have rather moved to Calgary than let that happen. Uh, You know, it is best for as much government as uh, for as much government power as possible to be distributed to the smallest possible units of government—the states, the cities, the towns, counties, whatever. State that I live in in the United States, New Hampshire, uh, which is sort of like Hampshire in England, except it's in New England, so it's covered in ice and snow for two thirds of the year, but otherwise very similar. Uh, Anyway, New Hampshire as among the lowest state tax rates and lowest per capita state spending of any state in America. So, I asked I ask our former governor, John Sununu, whom I know a bit, I asked the governor, uh, why was this? And, and Sununu said it was because of that reliance on local governments, the state relied on the local governments in the cities, the towns, and the counties. Johnson Noon is a, is, a, is a mechanical engineer, and he explained this in terms of mechanical engineering. He, he, he explained it by telling me about something called, uh, a goal of mechanical engineering called a short control loop. I was an English major. I had no idea what he was talking about. But what I gather is that a hot, the hot and cold taps in your shower are a short control loop. Now, if instead of being located in the shower stall, those hot and cold taps were in the basement, that would be a long control loop. Now it's not that short control loops always work. Uh, you may be out of hot water, but it is better to stand in the shower, fiddling with a useless tap than to march naked and dripping through the house, amazing the children and shocking the cleaning lady, down two <laughs> flights of stairs into the grungy basement and fiddle with useless tap down there. You know? So what happens is, you know, by, by not adhering to this short control loop, if our neighbor who's on the local sewer commission votes to raise our, our sewer rates, you know, if we do adhere to a short control loop, we can go next door and yell at him, you know, or, or stuff a potato up the tailpipe of his car, you know. Stuffing a potato up the tailpipe of the limousine of the President of the United States, that's a federal crime, or, or will be if I try it. Um, now despite the common sense of the short control loop argument, we're deaf to it. We're deaf to it. When something goes wrong, we don't consult the sewer commissioner next door, even what's, if what's wrong is backed up sewage. We go straight to Washington. We go straight to Washington, bypassing even the House of Representatives and the Senate. We expect the President of the United States himself to take time off from trying to get his limo started and, and, and come over to our house with a plunger, you know? So the expense of politics, the surrender of individual power to politics, and the gross inefficiency of politics, all bad. But nothing is as bad as the brain of a politician. Now you're saying, what brain? <laughs> nah. It's worse than a joke, actually. I mean, taken one by one, politicians are of dull, dull normal intelligence. But when we, when, when we put politicians together in government, what we get is committees. American House of Representatives and, and in the Senate, they come right out and call the committees committees. Now, we have all been on committees. We know what happens to intelligence and common sense when a person becomes a committee member. They get committee brain. You live in a neighborhood with a playground. The kids in the neighborhood would like to play tetherball, but the playground has no tetherball po- tether pole. Uh, so, a committee is formed to raise funds for tetherball. Committee to raise funds for tetherball, CRFT. Now, CRFT is started by a group of pleasant, enthusiastic, public spirited neighbors in a minute any of those neighbors become a member of CRFT, he or she will begin to express his or her pleasant, enthusiastic public spirit by turning into one of the following types. The stickler. We've all been on committees with the stickler. We have to draw up a charter and form a nonprofit corporation with a chairman, a president, vice president, secretary, treasurer, development officer, and human resources executive. And the tetherball pole has to be exactly four meters high in accordance with International Amateur Tetherball Association rules. Or the dog in the manger. We need to get permission from the, the, the county's zoning board and the city council and the parks department and, and adjacent landowners who may complain about tetherball noise. That, that, that part of the playground's too damp for, for tetherball. It, it might be federally protected wetlands. We can't, we can't, do, any, can't do any fundraising without advertising. We, we can't advertise without raising funds. Uh, and the kids would rather have a tennis court. The person who is stupid even by committee brain standards. So the rope has, like, a ball on the end of it. The warrior, padded pole, breakaway tether, lightweight foam ball, and and a ban on playing after dark or when visibility is poor and and when the sun is shining to avoid UV skin cancer damage. Uh, And the kids should wear helmets and knee pads and safety belts. The person with ideas will have a tetherball league. No, three adults, juniors, and tether tots. Let's, let's set up a challenge grant to erect a second tetherball pole in the inner city. Midnight tetherball could, could, could be an alternative to crime for deprived youth. We can also promote tetherball as a way to combat child obesity, which would make us eligible for funding from the Gates Foundation. <laughs> the person with ideas, none of which have anything to do with tetherball. Is the tether biodegradable? Is the pole made from recycled materials? Many playground balls are manufactured in third world countries using exploitative child labor. Let's be sure to utilize organic fertilizer and indigenous plant species when seeding the tether ball area. The bossy person who says the same thing as everyone else on the committee, but louder. The person who won't shut up, who says the same thing as everyone else on the committee, but more often. The person who won't show up unless his or her vote is crucial, in which case he or she shows up and votes the wrong way. And you, you, you actually do all the work. You call 40 people, you ask them each to donate $20, half of them do. You raise the $400 needed, only to find out that you need $400,000. Because the U.S. House of Representatives Economic and Educational Opportunities Committees, Select Committee on Opportunities in Physical Education, Subcommittee on Peoples with Disabilities Rights Compliance, requires all tetherballs to be wheelchair accessible no matter how high the tetherballs fly in the air. You know, given the complete dominance of politics... Given the complete dominance of politics by committee brain, the wonder is that anything get done, gets done, and the horror is that, that it does. You know, What government comp- accomplishes is what you would expect for, from a committee. Uh, uh, you know, a camel is a horse designed by a committee. That is a saying that is so wrong. That's so wrong. A camel is a seeing eye dog designed by a committee. <laughs> Available free with government grants to people who can see perfectly well, but who can't walk. (laughs) So, you know, it is the mission of libertarianism to show people the danger and the folly of letting their lives be run by committee. And it is the mission of libertarianism to show the people the danger and folly of all the temptations, and all the empty promises of a government that is so big and powerful that it thinks it can give everything to everyone and thinks it can do it for free. You know, politicians will work themselves into a lather to promote the benefits of that gigantic government. And using the logic that I hear from politicians, using the logic I hear from politicians about that huge and enormous government, I, I, I look at that logic and I think I could use that logic to prove anything. I can prove anything with that logic. I can prove that shooting convenience store clerks stimulates the economy, right? Jobs are created in the high-paying domestic manufacturing sector at gun and ammunition factories. Additional emergency medical technicians, security guards, healthcare providers, and morticians are hired. The unemployment rate is lowered as job seekers fill new openings on convenience store night shifts. And money stolen from convenience store cash registers stimulates the economy where stimulus is most needed in low-income neighborhoods where the people who shoot convenience store clerks go to buy their crack. (laughs) I mean, considering, considering all the good that it does. I am simply flabbergasted that everyone in your government, all your parliamentary representatives, all your senators, the prime minister, and the queen aren't smoking crack and shooting convenience store <laughs> clerks this very minute. Thank you. That's, that's everything I know. Um, we'll bring… Okay, Tom. That's Tom's cue to come out. That, that's everything I know, but, but Tom's going to ask me some questions. And I'm going to make up some other stuff. <laughs> on, there he is. Yeah. Thank you. Well, that's great, mate.
1: Well, you've reminded us of the, uh, in your very quirky and witty way, the perils of liberal life in the United States in 2016. But how does this affect the presidential race? Uh, Who, for example, I mean, you are a lifelong Republican, you're a libertarian, you're a quintessential center-right guy. Does this mean that you'll automatically support the Republican in this election, given everything you've just said?
0: No. (laughs) You see, Hillary Clinton is the worst example of everything I've just been talking about. (laughs) She's a terrible example of all of that stuff, whereas Donald Trump is merely, simply terrible. (laughs) You know, I mean, you can't, you can't, I mean... We, 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 oh, something we say to our kids very frequently around our houses is, is, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. In this case, I'm saying, um, don't let the very bad be the enemy of the truly awful. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I, have a lifelong Repo- I, I, I am uh, ethnically Republican. Ethnically Republican. I come from, I mean, uh, we my family my mother's family has been in the republican party since it started and and i mean their idea of a democrat was john wilkes booth the guy who shot lincoln you know that was that was a democrat around my house uh that was my mo- my grandmother wouldn't even she'd call him damned fool she wouldn't even she wouldn't say democrat in front of the kids uh, so no i grew up absolutely strictly a uh, 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 republican and I, I, I think Hillary is all wrong, but there are just, there are people who are simply unsuited to be handed the lever of power, uh, uh, you know. Well, you have said that Hillary Clinton is
1: absolutely wrong about everything, but quote, she's wrong within normal parameters.
0: Yes, <laughs> that's right, yeah. But question,
1: question, hasn't the success to date of Donald Trump? And even Bernie Sanders, and for those who aren't familiar, the 74-year-old socialist, who, among other things, honeymooned in the Soviet Union, uh, <laughs> yeah. gave Hillary a real run for her money. Yeah, hasn't the success of Trump? and Sanders, in a way, upended normal parameters?
0: Well, you know, no, not in the sense that, uh, especially when, when we go to finger on the button time. You know, <laughs> I, I, no, no, I, I'd like to stay wrong within normal parameters. But something's going on there. Yeah. Obviously something's going on. And it's immense voter frustration. And I think, you know, that, that if you were to do a root analysis of this, to try and go back uh, 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 to, to the absolute core of this, it's that, um, and, and this is true around the world, we have built in, in liberal democracies, we have built uh, an enormous uh, 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 welfare state. And in the process of doing that, we've expanded not only the size but the scope of government until government intrudes in every in, into every single aspect of life, until we have a situation where the Government is the first thought that everybody has about where to go to fix a problem. I mean, there is no problem so small that it can't cause a street demonstration. So, now, even if we were to stipulate that, let's not talk about whether what the government's doing is right or wrong. Let's stipulate for a moment the idea that everything the government does is good. which we'll just that's not a very likely idea, but let's just hold that as a thought experiment for a moment. Let's say everything the government is doing is good, it still couldn't possibly get it all done. It couldn't do it all, and it certainly couldn't do it all uh, w- w- without absolutely breaking the bank, which is what all of our governments in, in, in developed countries, w- 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 with the social benefit states, are doing. I mean, it's like a spousal relationship. It's like a marriage where I say to my spouse, "Look, okay, let's us divide up how we do things. You'll 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 earn the principal income, and and you'll raise the kids, and and you'll do all the cooking and the house cleaning, and 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 take care of the car maintenance. You know, and 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 do the the lawn work. Yeah, you're going to do that, and I'm going to." I, I don't, you know, I'm going to watch football on television. <laughs> like, this marriage is not going to work out, okay? And this is kind of the marriage that we, the electorate, have. This is the marriage we're in with the government where we've, we've said to the government, like, okay, take care, of, yeah. take care of everything for us. And even if that government were really doing a good job and all the things that it did were good, Uh, That's a big F.
1: But does that explain the success of Trump? I mean, there were 17 Republican presidential candidates in this primary... And he was probably the least free market oriented,
0: correct? Yes. Well, no, it explains the frustration. It doesn't explain how the fr- frustration vented itself. And it's so scary to look at the United States, which it, it was once upon a time basically a one-party state. You know, I think there was a British journalist, it may have been Andrew Coburn uh, mm-hmm. uh, or Alexander, well, it may have been one of the Coburn brothers, who said that you know, America basically has one political party and just like America, they've got two of them. There used to be huge, huge overlap uh, 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 between the two parties. And even now that they've been locked in partisan battle over the past eight years, there's still a tremendous about, uh, uh, overlap in objectives, if not in, in the method of getting there. To see America's electric fire off in two radically different directions that have nothing to do with this long-standing American consensus, one, one lunatic leftist over here, you know, I mean, I, I'm going, you know, I, Zombie politics. That's zombie politics. His politics are dead. The Berlin Wall fell on his politics, you know, boom, you know, he got killed. And i think thinking, well, of course it's kids, of course it's kids who go for yeah. Bernie. You don't realize, I mean, where were, where were you say to these kids, well, where were you in 1989? Oh, yeah, not born by a long <laughs> you know, We killed off communism so well that they don't know it doesn't work, you know? <laughs> You know, we, we did such a good job nailing <laughs> like that system. You know, and of course kids are always left-wing because they come from the only, the only example of Lenin's idea of from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. There's only one place that actually happens. It's your house. It's your family, right? You know, that's what happens in my house, you know, from each according to his ability. That would be dad's paycheck, you know, to each according to his need, which would be everything you can imagine that the kids want. And uh, 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 so you got it's shooting off in that direction. So Bernie is saying, we've got the government we've asked the government to do almost everything. Let's just knock it off and ask it to do absolutely everything. OK, And so that might work. And then you've got Trump, and I don't know what the hell is going on with Trump. Trump is basically Trump is a middle finger. Trump is a middle finger to the establishment, and not just the establishment, Hillary Clinton establishment, the Barack Obama establishment, or even like the Jeb Bush establishment, it's a middle finger to all of us in this room. You know, I mean, it is to all of the elites. This This is what, you know, people who feel that they are just set upon. I interviewed Excuse me for going on about this, but I, I did a piece for BBC World Service about the New Hampshire primary. Now, this is tough. First, you only got 27 minutes. Second place, it's the World Service. So it's, it's not Americans. And not only that, it's the World Service. So a lot of people who are listening, English is not their first language. So you've got to be clear in your explanation about what, what's going on here. And I failed utterly and completely. But I interviewed a lot of Trump supporters and I would go, I would go right up to him. Don't you think he's a little vulgar? Yeah. And would you want them around your house? No. <laughs> why are you voting for them? Because of this, you know, because they deserve this. They got this coming. And then you would ask people, why are, why are you so frustrated? And like one, one guy was saying to me, he said, look, you know, I got all these problems that I have with government. I work in a heavily regulated. I I I, yeah, I I I i i, I got a timber business. I cut trees for a living. It is really heavily regulated. I got this kind of paperwork. I got that kind of paperwork. I got this kind of stuff for my employees, and that kind of… this to fill out, and the other thing, and this tax, and that permit, and this is, you know, uh, and and all this stuff. And it's just really frustrating to me. And then I turn on the TV, and what are all the big shots talking about? Transgender bathrooms. (laughs) <laughs> so we work in the woods. We don't have any bathrooms. You know? so this is this feeling that I got from the Trump supporters, who are not personally dislikable people or not even personally angry people for the most part when I talked to them. It was just this frustration with a world that seems to be have no interest in their ordinary day-to-day problems. Again, I got from another person. He said, Obamacare, Obamacare. He said, i got a little business. He said, you know, and I can afford Obamacare for for, for my employees, but I can't afford the paperwork. The people in Washington, they never think about this. Every time they come up with a new brilliant idea, this big stack of paperwork arrives on my desk. It's just me and my wife. I don't have a a human services department. I don't have a legal department. It's just me and my wife running this business. This is time away from my business, you know? Another guy was going on about, like, gas tanks. He had a gas station. He said, I can't get the permits to take the old tanks out. They're beginning to leak. They need to be replaced. I can't get the permits to remove them. I can't get the permits to put new tanks in. What am I supposed to do? Stand there and hold the gas in my cupped hand, you know? And, I, of course, I, I'm wanting to say, I'm not quite saying it, but I'm, I'm sure thinking it, in electing a maniac, President of the United States fixes this how? You know? <laughs> But, none, you know, but, but, but the grievances I heard yeah. were genuine grievances. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, to be fair to
1: Trump and indeed Sanders, it's been said they've been tapping into this widespread sense of economic anxiety. Now, you did mention the collapse of communism. December is the 25th anniversary of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Francis Fukuyama, no stranger to the Center for Independent Studies, he declared the end of history, the, the uh, universalization of Western free market democracy. Spook? Too soon. He spoke too <laughs> soon. <laughs> but he nevertheless has an article in the current issue of Foreign Affairs magazine and he makes the point, and he's no Trump supporter or Sanders supporter, but Fukuyama makes the point that the meaning of this election is that at long last American democracy is responding to two generations of wage stagnation and rise, widening income inequality. How would you respond to that?
0: Uh, yeah, I think that that is true, and I think there's even more to it than that. Is uh, yes, we know that this has been a slow recovery. I mean, not, not only has this been a slow recovery from, from from the Great Recession, but even before the Great Recession happened, we 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 were in this period of of middle middle class lower lower middle class, especially skilled blue collar wage stagnation, uh, and as a result of globalization, is extremely disturbing. Uh, globalization is a case of uh, yeah. Is it a net good for our economies? Yes, but it's a case of of uh, you know one, a basic political principle is called concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. You don't mind a little penny tax here, that, even though you're not going to benefit from this thing. And there's but there's some and you can put up with this penny tax, but there's somebody who really really wants this tax because they're going to benefit from it in a big way. So. Globalization is the reverse. What it is, is uh, a concentrated cost and diffuse benefits. People don't see the benefits that they get from globalization because the benefits come in pennies. It's Mm -hmm. pennies off this T-shirt. It's pennies off this particular, you know, bowl of noodles, this, that, the other thing. It's a little bit here, a little bit there. If everybody were to total it up at the end of the year, or if it all were to suddenly change at the same time, people would be deeply shocked by by, by how much higher prices would be. But the, but the costs of globalization, the individual losing his job, that is a concentrated cost, and that person obviously can see that cost absolutely clearly. And so, of course, can kids going into the job market. So there's that going on. There's also, we're undergoing a massive economic and technological change, a change that that probably exceeds, uh, 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 probably qualitatively exceeds the Industrial Revolution. It certainly is moving much faster than the Industrial Revolution moved. Industrial Mm -hmm. Revolution really took a hundred years to take place and still hasn't reached parts of the world, you know. The electronic revolution is happening really fast and it's also, so it's causing all the disruptions that the the industrial revolution did, but it's causing them quicker. The other problem with it is it's non-linear. The one thing about the industrial revolution caused huge disruptions in people's lives and in society. But it had a sort of linearity to it, you know, and once you'd seen a railroad train, how surprised were you by an automobile? Not very much, because it's just a locomotive off the tracks, you know. But, but, the, but this, the, the, the current electronic, or whatever it may be called, uh, a revolution, the digital revolution that we're undergoing, is going off in so many directions at so many different times, changing things where you least expected them. Uh, and, and it's leaving everybody a little yeah, well, bit Well, to what extent is this digital disruption, economic dislocation
1: that's culminated in the rise of Trumpism, to what extent is this a global phenomenon? I mean, to what extent do you see this in many parts of Western and Eastern Europe?
0: Pretty much everywhere I think we see it in the developed world. Certainly it's the Brexit vote. You know, the Brexit vote stems from the same sort of thing. I would say the Scottish independence movement, putting it on, on on the other side, also stems from it. Uh, there is, of course, a, a, a clear and present. While, while we in the United States and you here may feel a general unease, dissatisfaction, and worry, they've got some highly specific things to worry about in Europe, and it's causing the frustration there to be channeled into into really some really unpleasant things. You know, I mean, to nationalistic, chauvinistic, outright racist. Splinter political parties that are no longer splinters. I mean, Marie Le Pen probably has you know more political influence yeah. than any other person in France, and that they're really the, threatening the established parties over there. Yes, they? they really are. Yeah, yeah. and they're uh, uh, you know I mean they, there's nothing of the fool about Marie, Marine Le Pen. You know I mean there's nothing clownish. But after Le Pen, uh, after Trump,
1: will normal programming resume in mainstream politics in the West?
0: Yeah, probably, but when is always the question. You sort of feel like, you know, looking out at this landscape, you're sure things will return to normal, but it's it's but you know, it's like the the, the problem that economists have. Economists can always accurately tell us what will happen. They just can never tell us the two things we want to know, which is when and how much, you know? About that, they're, they're, they're absolutely... There was the, the chief economist uh, 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 of, of the, of the now-retired of the New York Stock Exchange, an older guy, so we'll allow him to tell a somewhat sexist joke. But he said, you know, an economist is, uh, is a guy who knows 100 sexual positions and doesn't have a girlfriend. You know? <laughs>
1: Uh, Michael Lind, one of the sharp minds in Washington, Michael Lind, makes a point in a recent article, I think it was in Politico. He says that what we're witnessing now is not a left right divide in mainstream politics, but the beginning of a long battle between multicultural globalists, these are the elites, and populist nationalists, the masses. Is that plausible?
0: It is plausible enough to be seriously worried about. Plausible enough to, to, you know. I mean, I'm not sure he's right, but, he, but, 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 but it, it, it certainly is a possibility. And I think one of the things that, that, that people, politicians, need to understand I, I mean, I, I love being a journalist. I love being a journalist because of moments like this. All my job is just to turn on the light and see the roaches scurry, I don't have to step on any, you know. That job belongs to politicians you know, <laughs> or, you know, other people who are actually leaders in society. I'm so I have no responsibility whatsoever, and I'm so glad of it. You know. So often look at, you look at problems around the world, and you think, boy, I'm glad I don't have to decide what to do about that. You know. Not that anybody's called me up to ask me, but <laughs> I'm still really glad. Uh, if they did, I would say, it's your problem, President Obama. That's <laughs> why we elected you, you know, and, and quickly hang up. Um, but, you know, w- 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 what we often for- forget um, is that uh, people on the margins of our society, people who are just scraping along, uh, they, any of these changes, they tend to bear the brunt of this, and they are least able to, 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 to they're, they're least flexible in their economic situation, mm. uh, and, and they're also least flexible in their social situation. so. We get a wave of immigrants, and this is a good thing in in many ways. These people are highly motivated, they are our fellow human beings, they're going to work hard, and they're going to help build our nation, and they're also going to help us to to, uh, avoid the demographic suicide that places like Japan are committing, you know, where everybody in the whole country is over 80. Um, So, these are great, but of course it's with... The immigrants, the immigrants are people, and some of those people are not so good. And, and, and they gravitate to marginal neighborhoods where people in our own society are just kind of scraping along. Yeah. And so it's, it's these people whose jobs may be underbid yes. uh, 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 by new immigrants who have to adjust to suddenly they're sending their kids to school where half the kids in the school don't speak the language that their kids speak, maybe don't speak the language that each other... we. we, we my, my wife and I, when we were looking at schools and we were living in, still living in Washington, there was a good public school near us, but we were talking to a school librarian, and she said, well, there's one little problem with the school. There are 28 languages are spoken by the children in the school. This makes even just teaching two and two, because I don't know what the Tagalog word for two is, you know, uh, uh, this makes… Complicated everything for, for 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 the school, and yeah, these people are um, uh, you know they, they 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 would they they wouldn't wouldn't be human if they weren't
1: having trouble adjusting. Yeah, the process stuff. of coming to grips with radical change is never easy. Before I ask my last question, we'll open it up to everyone here. Uh, one, two, three, four. If you'd like to assemble, and we'll try to get your questions in. We'll have fifteen minutes. Um, Uh, What about foreign policy, Uh, It hasn't been a big issue in this election campaign, but today something like 50 prominent Republican foreign policy elites came out in a joint letter attacking Donald Trump for not having the temperament to be a commander in chief. Question, what credibility does the foreign policy elite in Washington have given that America's been at war now for 22 of the last 25 years. There's no end in sight. America's prestige and credibility, influence, its ability to persuade and overall since the Iraq invasion in 2003 have dissipated considerably. NATO expansion has arguably pushed Russia closer to China, which is not in America's strategic interests. And there's that widespread perception that we were talking about on left and right that the trade deals that the foreign policy elite have pushed have displaced the white
0: working class. What credibility does the Washington well, foreign policy let, elite let have here? Slightly, the, the trade and the war things are slightly separate. Let's go with the war one. You know, the, the yes, it is be tempting to say uh, uh, that uh, you know, you go through the New York phone book if they had a phone book anymore at random and pick somebody, Trump. You know. And, 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 and put them in charge of American foreign policy, and, 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 you know. But the thing is, having spent 20 years as a foreign correspondent, uh, I, I say, foreign policy is an area in which you never want to say the words, things can't get any worse. <laughs> uh, I would say foreign policy is the one thing uh, uh, that, that makes me most adamant about being willing to vote for Hillary, even though yeah. I don't care for, her, and and and, be, and refusing to vote for Trump. Uh, 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 and it, it truly does, you know. You, you you don't want there are horrible surprises that could happen out there. Bad as the Iraq War and its aftermath was, things could be worse than that, and but you the, just but, don't. Want but the
1: American people it. are very war weary. This is quite evident. Oh, we a lot are of tired of it. I, I mean, could he, not Trump will afraid. run the campaign in the next three yeah. months that Hillary is a hawk? Yeah. who makes a bad situation by meddling in the Middle East. If you vote for me, we'll get out of these wars. That's what Trump's argument would be. And yet
0: at the same time, sometimes, you know, there is no way out but forward. You know, as Winston Churchill had said about, he said, when you're going through hell, keep going. <laughs> <You know? laughs> okay, questions? But actually, but let's follow up a little bit on, on the yeah. trade thing, just for one thing, is I, I feel the same way about Trump with trade. I just feel that the instability of the man, the impulsiveness of the man, the untrustworthiness of the man, mm-hmm. trade's an important consideration. Indeed, yeah. indeed. Number four. Yes, ma'am.
2: Um, I'm just surprised that you've only mentioned Gary Johnson in passing and wanted to know what you think about his candidacy and what the impact will be. These, outcome.
1: these are the libertarian candidates, Gary Johnson and William World. what are
0: their prospects and will you support them? Well, you know, if I have the luxury, I, yes, I'd like to support them, but I mean, I think it's so important that Trump not be president, that if, it, if I wake up on, if I wake up on election day and in my state, Hillary is ahead by a comfy 30 points, you know. Uh, I will then have the luxury to to vote the Libertarian ticket. But i got to say, these guys have not been setting the Thames on fire, you know, in terms of their campaigning, you know. I mean, uh, Johnson, best known for his love of marijuana, Bill Weld for uh, liking to have a drink, you know, and and nothing against him for it, you know, but it is the token tipple ticket, you know. (laughs) uh, But I think it does open up, you know, if if we get, like, Better libertarian candidates in the future. It probably does. They are going to get a. They are going to get a big chunk of the vote, and they, and rightly so.
2: And how worried are you about that?
0: Oh no, I think it's a good thing that they're getting a, a large chunk of, a, a, of the vote. Well, we are looking at five, maybe ten percent? Yeah, we're, we're certainly looking at. And they need fifteen percent to be on the debate stage, correct? You know, those rules change. Those rules are fluid. Okay. Number one.
2: Wait wait, a minute. Do you think that a vote for him would be a vote for Trump, essentially?
0: No. I would say, actually, uh, the Libertarian ticket is probably going to take more votes away from Trump. But I will say this, that Mike Bloomberg, whom a lot of us thought would be an excellent third-party candidate had he chosen to run. Mike did the math on this. Mike's good at math. And he came to the conclusion <laughs> that, that basically anybody who ran to the, uh, to the right of Hillary would increase Trump's uh, 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 chances of winning. So I sort of defer to a guy who spent a lot of money and time yeah. thinking about himself.
1: <laughs> oh, on, that note, on that note, I have heard polling data that shows that 5%, uh, 10% of Sanders supporters parking their vote with the libertarians. Isn't that intriguing?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that we know the Sanders supporters are socially libertarian, you know, I mean, and we also know that they don't understand anything about socialism (laughs) because they've never seen it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, sir.
2: PJ, thank you very much for your many books, but particularly Holidays in Hell. When you look around the world, do you actually wish there was another chapter you could write and where would that be? No, I
0: don't. You know, I I said I spent 20 years as a foreign correspondent, most of it in trouble spots, and uh, I I can't go back. One thing: I'm too old. You know, I I came back from the Iraq War, telling my wife, I said, "You know, I'm too old to be scared stiff and too stiff to sleep on the ground." So that's that. You know, (laughs) we're done with this stuff. Uh, But uh, the other thing is that uh, back in the old days, in the 80s and 90s, when I did most of this stuff. Uh, the, the, the media outlets were limited, and, and it was a, a standing joke among war correspondents that our single biggest danger was having our ear talked off. You know, everybody had a story, everybody had grievances, everybody had everybody had a bitch to make, everybody had a story to tell, and they wanted to tell it to you. And I can, you know, and they you know they would make their point over and over and over. again. Oh, well, those Croats are just horrible. You wouldn't believe what S.O.B.s the Serbs are. Oh my God, you know the Bosnians, you know. On the Kosovo. I, I can remember plenty of times when I was just, they couldn't read English. I'm just scribbling in my, you know, I'm writing, I am taking notes, I am taking notes. I, I would flip the page with a flourish, you know, look attentive, because you know, they had guns, you know, so I mean, you don't want to be rude. <laughs> you know, I'm taking more notes now. <laughs> so that, those days are gone. They don't need us anymore. They've got, they're, you know, they're, they're on Twitter.
2: <laughs> so. Number two. Yes, sir. Uh, Thanks for the talk, Mr O'Rourke. I was a libertarian of sorts when I was young, and in my view, I progressed. In your view, no doubt, I regressed. Um, My question concerns the sort of uh, large-scale structure of the uh, economy of your country. So, you know, your president coined the term military-industrial complex, and without... Going into the details, that's the idea that there is a cooperation between big business and government to take a massive wad of the tax spend and use it for global domination. And unless a fair few leftists are completely wrong, uh, certainly it could be said that your country is very, very distant from anything resembling a sort of laissez-faire yeah. type of system. My question, yeah. I guess, is what's the point of being a libertarian in that context? Because you could live for 500 years and you never get there. Why not engage with the system as it is, which is sort of imperialist and oligarchical in many people's yeah. view?
0: Well, the reason that I don't vote for the libertarian party is precisely what you say, but the other thing is the most important thing about libertarianism is, is, is that, it's, that it's a critical method. When you look at what a politician has to say or a program is being presented, libertarianism basically asks you to ask three questions, which is, is this conducive to human dignity? Is this conducive to human liberty? is this conducive to human responsibility, to individual responsibility, individual liberty, individual responsibility, individual dignity. So libertarianism is more, it's not a coherent political philosophy, it's more a way of looking at things. And I would guess that, that, that uh, wh- however your vote may have shifted uh, uh, on the political spectrum, my, my, my guess is that, that you probably retain that, 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 that core idea of how to look at things.
1: Mm. Libertarianism is uh, incompatible with a Pax Americana, in other words.
0: Well, it certainly has its problems. And incidentally, with the military-industrial complex, where'd the industrial part go? It's, <laughs> yeah. of jobs. it's now become the, like, uh, military and, <laughs> and, 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 and renewable solar power, uh, uh, <laughs> eco friendly light rail complex. <laughs>
3: Number somewhere. three. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, Uh, Mr. Mr. O'Rourke. Regarding Donald Trump, uh, he's obviously been brought to heel uh, in the last week, given his widely absurd carry-on for the weeks before, attacking the Khan family, uh, kicking babies out, and all that sort of off-the-cuff stuff. He was brought uh, to endorse McCain... Uh, Paul Ryan and a few other senators with a written script, which was very unusual for him because he... We had to remember their names. Yes. (laughs) But but he was obviously schooled by the Gingrich, uh, Giuliani's, the elders, if you like, of the party. And, in fact, even in uh, Detroit, where he gave his economic speech, it was still scripted, and even when... um, uh, Protesters were saying, you know, he had small hands and all the rest, which is just such a delicious insult. Question. Uh, do you think he can stay, uh, you know, the question is, can he stay on message? No. Or is he going to flip out next, yeah, he's in flip the next out. 24 hours? <laughs> yeah,
0: he's absolutely <laughs> going to flip out. You know, I mean, he is... Uh, people have done all this psychoanalysis of Trump. I don't think anybody who's raised kids needs to do any psychoanalysis of Trump. <laughs> the big three-year-old, you know? Yeah, he can be really cute for a moment, you know, and then, like, all hell breaks loose, you know? we had a saying, <laughs> particularly about our eldest daughter, was that the there's the terrible twos, and then there are the threes that are so bad there's no name for them. <laughs> and he is... He's just, he's, he's, you know, he's... He, he, utterly infantile person. Yes, ma'am.
3: Um, so, given that you think Trump is just a massive middle finger to everyone, how do you feel about or what do you think about the way the Republican establishment or elites are handling his candidacy? Should they be disavowing him? or?
0: Yes, they should be. I, I'm ashamed of them. You know, I'm, I'm absolutely ashamed of them. They should They should have the guts like the Bush family has to step aside and say, no, this is just absolutely inappropriate, you know. Uh, and you know, not nearly enough Republicans have done that, and I think it will be remembered. I think it will re- it will be remembered, especially if he gets elected. <laughs> oh gosh! <you> know? <laughs> it will be a very much. What did you do during the What did you do during the Trump daddy? <laughs> yeah,
1: but, but hang on. On that note, though, should they re- should these Republicans repudiate Trump because of his rude and crude behaviour, or because he essentially wants to upend? the central pillars of the Republican Party that have been in place since Ronald Reagan's ascendancy?
0: Oh, well, certainly uh, both those things, but probably they should start with his character and then go to his, you know, right. his, his, his ideology yeah. or lack thereof. You know. Yes, ma'am.
3: This is not a particularly educated response, but I just wanted to make a comment that mm, free will, it sounds as if your political philosophy has been handed to you by your family. And I wonder about free will in America, where people have the right to bear arms and they go around killing each other so badly and so horrendously. And I just wanted to say I take a slight exception about your comment about compulsory voting in Australia. I think it's one moment where everyone's forced to think about what they want their country to be. Mm. And that's not such a bad thing.
0: Whoa, there you go, PJ. You're on
1: the butt foot now.
0: It's your country, you make the rules. You know, it's not up to me. You know looks wacky from the outside, but you know, maybe maybe if I were here I would I, I would understand. You know. And let's just not go there with the guns. You know, the thing is you can't just be it's like an American, you get to Australia and it's like, what about your guns? You know, and I you know, I, I didn't bring a gun, you know. I don't, I don't have a gun. Uh, And it's just you know there there are you're not going to get those those cats back in that sack. Uh, They're probably uh, uh, they're about 320 million Americans, and there are about 320 million guns in America that we know of, that we know of. (laughs) And good, you know, you go over there and have a try at sorting it out. You know. It's an interesting issue,
1: isn't it? I mean, this, this America-Australia divide. I mean, John Howard... It's a big divide, yeah. John Howard, a uh, well-known conservative yeah. prime minister, a second-longest-serving prime minister. Uh, he... <laughs> in America, he's known as being to the left of the Democrats mm-hmm. on gun control. Mm-hmm. And uh, Julia Gillard, uh, who was a prominent centre-left uh, Labor politician, prime minister here... At the time, when she was Prime Minister, she was on gay marriage to the right of Dick Cheney. (laughs) So it just goes to show how complicated it is. Dick Cheney was,
0: you know... Quickly,
1: one last question, number two, yeah.
0: If the scenario happens where the Electoral College is deadlocked between the two candidates, how likely do you see it where electors may vote differently than their state voted? Hmm. Not very likely. Uh, uh, th- that would take the kind of, uh, of, of, of upstanding uh, uh, political courage that, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of which American politicians have that kind of courage and like, uh, there may be some, but they're dead. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not even sure about them, you know. Uh, It's just, uh, you know, the, 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 the politicians will do almost anything you can imagine except end their own careers. On the other hand, it seems like this is exactly the scenario the Founding Fathers envisioned with a demagogue. At the precipice, yes, of the, absolutely, state power. absolutely. It's this what they were is terrified of. One of the reasons that America has this incredibly complicated voting system is to prevent this kind of thing, supposed to prevent this kind of thing from happening. And uh, the thing is that the founding fathers, you see, they had day jobs. You know? <laughs> they were anxious to get home, you know, to the plantation and all sorts of things going on there for for Thomas Jefferson. Uh, <laughs> Some of them had better reasons to get home. You know? But at any rate, they, they didn't really foresee the, they, they didn't, this is the 18th century, this is a very, you know, early experiment with democracy and they really didn't foresee modern politics uh, uh, even as it arose in Britain, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, they, you know, they, they, you have to look at this through 18th century eyes and so, you know. Look, we could keep talking and I'm so sorry, we've got
1: no more time for questions. But ladies and gentlemen, please thank me, PJ Raw. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you.